Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Anyone who's worked in healthcare in a hospital setting has some interesting stories to tell. Not only tales of life-saving and sometimes loss, but there are other not-so-common tales as well. Perhaps it's a story of some unseen presence that only seems to occur in one place. Maybe it's something spiritually relevant, like a patient's recollection of a near-death experience or some otherwise unexplainable occurrences. During my tenure as a security guard at various hospitals here in the lower mainland of British Columbia, I had access to some of the most fascinating places behind the scenes. Staff at these institutions always had strange stories to tell. Especially of interest to me was that of the Vancouver General Hospital's burn unit ghost. On October 3, 1975, after a massive explosion at a grain elevator in North Vancouver, 20 workers were sent to hospital with serious injuries, mostly burns. Although 16 of the men survived, four did not. They were James Evoy, 42, Mel Hoey, 58, John Scully, 56, and 28-year-old David Brown, no relation. Brown survived in room number 415 of the VGH burn unit for 58 days in excruciating pain before he expired. Hospital staff, nurses, orderlies, porters, and security personnel, including one with whom I worked, all claimed to have had encounters with Dave Brown either in his room, near it, or in the tunnel under the hospital. Sometimes he appears as just a shadow or a dark shape. Other times, he is seen in full body, walking through the halls or in the tunnel. Others have claimed to hear breathing in room 415, even though it was otherwise unoccupied. Lights have flickered on and off, and toilets in the room or others adjacent to it have flushed untouched, sometimes accompanied by strange cold spots. Some other patients in the burn unit after Dave's demise have claimed to have seen a badly burned man who comes to them, standing at their bedside, providing an oddly comforting sensation, despite his grotesque appearance. There are more stories just at VGH alone, but we'll save those for another time. Morgan and today's guest, Richard Estep, are both regulars on the television shows Haunted Hospitals and Paranormal 911. In both of these series, Healthcare providers, former patients, and first responders all share their own encounters with things they were unable to explain away. Experiences in his childhood and during Richard's decades-long background as a paramedic, both at home in the United Kingdom and now in the United States, prompted his interest in things paranormal. He's written a mitful of books on the subject, all available on Amazon, including Haunted Healthcare, Medical Professionals and Patients Share Their Encounters with the Paranormal. You can learn more about Richard at his website, richardestep.net. Now here's Morgan. As we move into a new age, spirituality and healthcare is becoming greatly interlinked in ways we haven't seen in many hundreds of years. The notion that people's intention and focus do not affect healing, whether it be for ourselves or directed towards others, Places like the Institute of Noetic Science is working to ultimately prove that we are more than simply meat suits with a brain that allows us awareness. How will this change the face of medicine as EMTs, nurses, and doctors are forced to include brand new factors into their treatments and even diagnoses? For example, the notion of directed or non-directed prayer may now be a factor taken into account for treatment. 
directed prayers are prayers in which intercessors ask their higher power to make manifest specific objectives. Non-directed prayers are prayers which ask for the will of a higher power to be made manifest, whatever that may be, or that ask for whatever is best for their patient, such as thy will be done. It has been suggested that spiritual healing should not be investigated scientifically in the absence of a plausible explanation of the underlying mechanism. In a recent paper, researchers were quoted as saying the following, our study focused only on intercessory prayer as provided in this trial and was never intended to and cannot address a large number of religious questions, such as whether God exists, whether God answers these prayers, or whether prayers from one religious group work in the same way as prayers from other groups. We have not proven that God answers prayers or that God even exists. It was a prayer, not the existence of God, that was tested here. The idea of whether spirituality affects those who care for the sick and injured is undoubtedly a hot topic, but one that is not often talked about. In my four years on haunted hospitals and paranormal 911, I've had the privilege of meeting those who have dared to talk about things like intention, life after death, near-death experiences, OBEs, spirits, and their impact in the medical field. I've had the joy of sharing the screen with my co-host, Richard Eastep, a paramedic who lives this balance as both an EMT and paranormal author and investigator. My own family history is steeped in medical backgrounds as well, including my mother, a 30-year registered nurse, my great-great-grandfather, Albert Durant Watson, who was a famous physician and paranormal researcher, and my great-grandfather, all found their way in the medical profession. As Richard and I have tackled haunted hospitals cases of all kinds, We've had to navigate emotions, religions, science, belief, and personal experiences, which have all impacted our clients. And in Richard's case, have a role in how he deals with patients from day to day. The human experience is not a one-size-fits-all experience. In fact, it is so unique to each person that our perception will actually alter how we see what otherwise would be identical things. No individual awareness is the same which means as we move ahead in medical science, that treatment must become as individual as our perception. And as we test the boundaries of faith, placebos, spirituality, and health, how we navigate this for our own well-being will become and is becoming paramount to a treatment's success or failure. Once we begin to accept that science is beginning to catch up with psi, how we treat ourselves and others in both life and medicine, will undoubtedly become a healer's field in more ways than we can imagine. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So this is great today because we had the wonderful Chris Brewer just a couple of weeks ago, which yeah. is really cool. And now this week... Richard, we've got you, which is about time. <laughs> like, this is, seems like a long time coming. It's a long overdue, isn't it? Way long overdue. So happy that you're, you're here today because, I mean, you, well, I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be haunted hospitals without both of you. So, I mean, we're just, I'm just glad that you're here. And it's, this is, this is great. So how are you? I am doing very well. Thanks for asking. It's, uh, a nice, beautiful night here in Colorado. We're bracing for snowfall tomorrow. Uh, and of course, Murphy's Law tomorrow is a day I decided to work 24 hours on the ambulance. So it promises to be an interesting set. Oh, of course dear. it is. Yeah. Why is it? Like, it's just, it seems to be the way it goes, especially in, in medicine. I don't know what it is, but it's like, 
that seems to be the way it is. You know, if you're going to work, it's always the, the the day that, you know, nobody really wants to work like Halloween or something. We are, we are creatures of, so good providers believe in evidence-based medicine and we are not superstitious until we actually go to work. In which case, um, <laughs> if you use the Q word and say, no, I was just going to say that, <laughs> then we will kill you. Um, yeah. Because, you know, saying that it's quiet is a great way to um, curse your shift. And uh, also, despite there being no real evidence that the full moon, that I'm aware of anyway, that the full moon has an effect um, in terms of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Frequency of emergency calls. Everybody's, everybody does not want to work the full moon either. Um, I. I used to work at the Vancouver Hospital uh, emergency, in the emergency department as a security guard, and, and I am very well aware of those superstitions, and, uh, and I have seen them in action a number of times. I mean, I don't know if it's a coincidence or any of that kind of stuff, but I remember somebody using the Q word one night and being cussed out, and then there was like yeah. a, a massive uh, multi-car crash. And we, we all had to deal with that afterwards. So I, interesting. I do wonder if it isn't a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know? You right. know? <laughs> yeah. That's my suspicion. Um, we believe it. Well, there's good evidence to prove that the placebo effect works. Are we kind mm -hmm. of doing a negative placebo on ourselves? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that goes right back to our very first episode, the Philip experiment, where... Mm -hmm this in entity is created by the people who are trying to prove this stuff doesn't exist. So, Well, what's kind of cool is that there was actually a peer-reviewed study done. Uh, you can find it on PubMed um, in 2004 that was called the full moon and admission to emergency rooms. Oh, Ooh. cool. And this yeah, looked would... at 58,000 trauma patients in hospitals um, and concluded uh, ultimately that the full moon did not have a negative effect on injuries in the emergency room admissions. So, uh, and, yeah, I know. Isn't this cool that it's been studied? Wow. And there were also ancillary studies between, if you go look at this stuff on PubMed, um, they looked at pediatric psychiatric emergency department visits during the full moon as well. Mm -hmm. um, full moon as it relates to traumatic injuries. Uh, Mike, sorry to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's actually been well studied. I just wish somebody would study use of the Q word now uh, and its prevalence in trauma call. You know, it, it's, it, it does, it makes you, it makes you wonder. And I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm on the same page as you guys. I, I think there's, there's this level of, uh, you know, self manifestation mm -hmm. when, you know, we're, you're dealing with any sort of, well, any, any sort of like superstition or anything like that, you know, I often apply that same, uh, that same idea to you know, when people say, oh, well, you know, my land's been cursed or something's been cursed, mm -hmm. and, you know, and you see that over and over and over again that, you know, the, we do, I mean, our, our thoughts are so powerful. They just, they create so much. So, I mean, and, and we know too, with the body, you know, our bodies respond to our thinking. So, I mean, it makes sense. It just fascinates me. And I, I do love the fact that we are now actually actively studying this superstition. I think that's terrific. It's, it's just, yeah, it, it needs it needs to be done on behalf of every single medical professional out there. Yeah. They're well, all dying for this. And, and I'll, I'll make a prediction, a confident prediction, that having seen these studies and being aware of their results, um, I still flatly refuse to use the Q word when I'm at work. Right. And, and I still will find myself saying, why did I volunteer to work at Full Moon? Um, it's so ingrained in the psyche of the medical profession. Oh, yeah. I, I, well, like you say, I mean, you know, doctors, nurses, first responders, I mean, it doesn't matter who you who you talk to. I mean, everybody's got a story. And I mean, you and I, we've we've even had some of those stories on haunted hospitals. There's been a couple on Paranormal 911 of people working either full moon shifts or Halloween or, mm -hmm. you know, or something. And bam, there's, you know, a, a weird stuff that starts popping up, whether it be like a rush of of patients or, or just some weird case or I mean, it's it's crazy. It's uh, it's never less than fascinating. And uh, I, I do think that all being well, we'll continue collecting and telling those stories on haunted hospitals, hopefully for many years to come. 
I really look forward to it because holy, and I know you haven't seen the fourth season, but Canada has seen the fourth season or is starting to. And I, I, I can't say enough about it. The producers have knocked this one right out of the park. It's, it's really, really well done. But let's get into you a little bit because, you know, uh, people see you on these shows, they see you on haunted hospitals, they read your books. And what I think a lot of people don't know is that we share some similar stories as well. We, I mean, we grew up in this and, you know, you grew up, of course, in, in England and being really familiar with your grandparents' house, but your grandparents' house had stuff going on. Yeah, that's true. Um, I never experienced anything in my grandparents' house, but my grandparents, um, well, my grandfather was, uh, he fought in the Second World War in Burma. Um, and so while he was away, my grandmother, uh, I have several aunts and uncles. It was one of those big World War II generational families. And so um, my grandmother was left to raise the children herself. Um, the Luftwaffe was bombing the city at night. She was trying to handle all these kids, you know, um, the most stressful circumstances imaginable. And my aunts and uncles all told the same story about this old lady that would come into their bedroom at night and just make sure that they were all tucked in ready before they, before they went to sleep. And in the way that children have that wonderful open-minded way before we beat it out of them with, you know, um, the, the girls of adulthood, none of them ever thought anything other than this is a friend that, you know, is keeping a watch for lioness. It was only when they finally told my grandparents the story after my grandfather returned from um, Burma that um, they realized, hey, we didn't have anybody in the house at that time. They were describing the former tenant of the home who had died downstairs quite a few years before. Oh, my. And um, the best theory they had, which I I completely agree with, um, is that she was recognizing the stressful situation, the life or death nature of the world at that point, and was just doing her bit to help the family out, to keep a watchful eye. And when my grandfather returned to the civilian world, uh, she stopped turning up. She disappeared and the children grew up. They went their own separate ways. None of them ever saw her again. Um, But I used to sleep in that bedroom. And so Mm. I'd heard these stories. And of course, they delighted in scaring the pants off me with these stories. Of course. (laughs) I was sleeping in there alone. So I would lay there at night with these stories in my head, uh, half hoping she would turn up because it's cool and half terrified that she would turn up. Uh, And she never did. But it is what set me on the road to the library, uh, which is, you know, there was no paranormal TV in those days. So you wanted to learn about this kind of stuff and have a passion for it. You read about it. Yeah. Well, and there was something so because uh, I I mean, I was the same way. I mean, there, the, the only I think the only TV show on at the time for me was was sightings. It was mm-hmm. the only one. And, and it, you know, it, we I think we we kind of hit that era, all three of us, where we didn't have the influence of the sort of over the top ghost hunting that craze wasn't there right mm-hmm. and there was i think there was something so pure about that you know yeah i would agree with you i mean when i i first began investigating in 1995 so this was i think if if i remember correctly most haunted is the tv show that really launched the paranormal yes. craze um ghost hunters and paranormal state kind of came after that here in the u.s but um prior to that in 1995 you still had to go to the library and it was not something i talked about at work a lot Uh, Mm -hmm. now it's water cooler conversation and we have paranormal tourism back then if you went to dark abandoned places and tried to investigate claims of dead people being active you know um you would be ostracized Mm. Yeah, and it reminds me actually of uh, of the fact that I was also that a young adult that was heavily into comic books and graphic novels, as I still am. So those were the days in which adults didn't read, you know, DC comics, Marvel comics, those kind of things. Now, it's it's considered somewhat strange if you aren't, um, yeah, okay with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Universe. Those two things have flipped. You know, and we've seen them both become mm-hmm. socially acceptable and immensely popular. Well, and it's funny, too, that you, you mentioned that because <laughs> a little while ago I had posted, uh, I, I bought a, bunch, a, a few Ninja Turtle figures because Ninja Turtles, that, that's been my thing since I was a kid. <laughs> and it's so funny because I posted, I bought, I bought 
four new ones a few months back. And it was like every single paranormal person that I knew, whether it be from TV or academia, it didn't matter, (laughs) PhDs, everybody came out of the woodwork. And it was like, it was like, oh, you've got Ninja Turtles. Oh, which ones are those? Oh, I've got these ones. And it was like this explosion of people talking about what figures they had on their desk. And so it's interesting that those two things seem to go hand in hand as well. That the, the, the paranormal, the sort of that, that nerdy world, we can nerd out on the pop culture side <laughs> just as much as we can nerd out on the paranormal side. We, we can. And I love the fact that now this has become not just something acceptable, but to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. remain the case. I, I, you know, I hope so. I mean, one of my, my favorite shows to do are, are, are fan expos when I bring my, my mm. big shows to the, the state. I love them. I, and it's, it's not just because I, I, you know, I, I get good shows there and the audiences are great, but I love the energy. It's just yeah. so much fun. It is. The last fan expo I did, courtesy of Mr. Aaron Sagers, uh, I, I talked about the paranormal on a panel with several other like-minded individuals. Uh, signed some books, and then spent my time chatting with Christopher Eccleston, um, oh, fun. one of my favorite yeah. Doctor Whos. What a, an amazing experience. And I would not have been in that position if it weren't for the paranormal field. So um, yeah. I'm immensely grateful. Oh, I yeah, I, I, told, I couldn't agree more. And so, I mean, you, because you grew up in England, you, I mean, you had a very different experience i think than some of the the u.s and and canadian kids and whatnot how did the environment of england and growing up in such a a, a area was with such rich history did that influence you for into this um i think it influenced my love of history i always i always like to talk about the fact that living now in the states as i do uh, a lot of very well-meaning americans will say to me something like oh you have so much more history in, in the UK where you come from. And I'm like, well, no, we really don't. Yeah. Um, I see what you mean, <laughs> but it's different, right? It's There is plenty of history here in Canada. I get that there is you know, a difference in terms of when these places were settled by Westerners, mm-hmm. um, but there is no lack of fascinating history pretty much anywhere you go. Um, what we do have in Britain is the stereotypical uh, I do love to talk about the fact that prior to um, my coming to the States, the idea of a quote-unquote demonic haunting or whatever you want to call it um, was something that D-word. I, yeah, I'd never run into. Um, I investigated a lot of ordinary residences with fairly interesting activity going on with small families and a lot of stately homes, manor houses, and even a castle or two, you know, the, the stereotypical Scooby-Doo kind of location sure Um, and it was all very pleasant uh and i really love that side of things and i really miss that side of things too uh i like the fact that when i started especially in the uk there was no sensationalism Um, yeah there was just a genuine passion for these wonderful haunted old locations and the spirits that reside there oh i i so love that and i i couldn't agree with you more i i think that 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 basic fact of the paranormal is not predominantly horrific. And it seems like the West has done most of the job <laughs> in presenting that specific narrative. Like I, I did quite a lot of study early on into uh, blue zones. Mm-hmm. And for the for the audience, blue zones are, are places that are predominantly the happiest places in the world, according to a set of, of nine uh, criteria. And what was so interesting to me was that the majority of these happiest places, the majority of these blue zones were not in the US. Oh, they, we had none in Canada, mm-hmm. but we had, there was maybe, I think one or maybe two in the States, but all of the rest of them were predominantly in, in different places like Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, mm-hmm. uh, places like that. And when you looked at the hauntings that were there, the hauntings that were there, were, it was this exactly what we're talking about. Just this very, um, you know, happy stories or, you know, wonderful stories, inspirational stuff and whatever. And I think it just goes to show that, you know, de- where your, you know, where your thoughts are, where your, your, your vibration is, for lack of a better word, um, you know, all of that really does, it really does matter. The narrative we tell ourselves about hauntings matters. It does. And I, I think that we do kind of influence 
the tale and of course it takes on a life of its own um so we really do need to be careful about the accuracy of what we're what we're dealing with um you talked about sightings i mean i will be heading to atchison kansas this weekend to investigate yet again the sally house oh excellent which i'm working on a book about sightings was how i first heard about that location they didn't name the the town initially they called it the heartland haunting you know um, I remember that. But the narrative of Sally, as far as I'm aware, the idea of this little girl that was supposedly taken into this doctor's house, operated on without anesthesia, dying on the table and now hating all men because of it. I've been unable to find a shred of evidence to support that narrative whatsoever. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's been my uh, my understanding of it as well. And, and I mean, I've seen cases like this over and over again where you've got uh, you know, an, an entity that's that's manifested or whatever, whatever it is. But I mean, whatever it is, it's not a little girl. Like it does, it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, more to the point, I do wonder if the story hasn't been told so often, so repeatedly in good faith. You know, we've talked about thought forms a lot. I think it literally yeah. has taken on a life of its own at this point. And whatever yeah. is in that house will answer to that name. Yes. Will, will sometimes present in that way. As if it's either role playing or, you know, perhaps cosplaying would be a great way to put it, considering what we just talked mm. about. But either way, kind of stepping into the character that has already been predefined for it by this repeated narrative. Yeah, I, I would agree. And what I because what I find so interesting about that, I talked years ago to uh, the original owners, uh, Deborah Pickman and her husband. Yeah, Tony. And yeah, Tony. And. I like I remember having that conversation with them and they were like, you know, we just we we don't understand like what this was like. This is, you know, this this nasty thing that mm -hmm. was doing just horrific things yeah. in the house, you know, and it's like, OK, you, sometimes you got to you got to look at the behavior of what's going on. And, you know, when you look at the behavior compared to the narrative, I mean, the, I mean, if this entity is claiming to be this little girl, I mean, it's just it's absurd. I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if what's there is a you know, a, a, you know, a thought form or, you know, whatever it happens to be, it's, it's definitely not a, it's definitely not a little girl, you know, missing her mommy and hating on guys. Yeah. I mean, and, and to be fair, I don't think, I think there are so many convoluted aspects to this. Picking Big apart time. the truth is almost impossible, but um, I, I find that location fascinating, you know, and I find the idea of, of what could truly be going on very, very compelling indeed. So uh, I had a very nasty escape. Uh, a couple of times ago when I was at the Sally house. I don't know if you recall, but um, uh, I, I tell our audience because they don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd spoken to several paranormal investigators that claimed that the house was either cursed or uh, that there was a negative entity there, which did not like investigators sometimes leaving. Um, and, and I'm a big believer that, ironically, that curses are, they only have as much power over you as you give them, as you believe yep. in yourself. Agreed. Um, but I was about 45 minutes um, uh, west of Atchison, three o'clock in the morning, brand new tires on my truck, 80 miles an hour on the, on the freeway. And one of my tires shredded. It just exploded and shredded um, and threw me off the road, almost killed me. Wow. And I'd been told by a medium in the UK, my friend MJ Dixon, that uh, there was a negative entity attached to that house. And it was very much taking an interest in my movements and whereabouts and had not wanted me to leave. So uh, and I'd been told that I should hasten to add before the incident had happened. In so, interesting. Yeah, I, I always am yeah. a little bit wary uh, about mm -hmm. those kind of claims. But uh I certainly treat that house with respect. Uh, well, and I think that's the key with so many of these cases. And I, and I think that's what we all strive to do, if, even on haunted hospitals when we get these cases, is to look at to look at them and to respect what's there. I think you know, and even with a case like the Sally House, you know, we you, you get something like that, and you know, regardless of you know whether the truck incident was something that was you know naturally occurring or something that was paranormal yeah. yeah like you know regardless of what that was it, it it's a good reminder that it's like this is this is energy you know this is energy this is something that this can be something far bigger than us mm -hmm. and to you know to be mindful of you know the energy that we bring into the space as well as you know the energy that's that's there that, that we are still at the cusp of trying to understand this stuff 
Absolutely. And I always approach those kind of cases with respect anyway. Um, I've never understood the logic of not doing that. Whether mm -hmm. something is present or not, um, it just seems to me that in any situation in life, respecting the unknown is the only healthy approach. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because in my, my last book, I, I wrote a, a, a bit in there about the difference between having fear and respect and approaching something with curiosity rather than fear so that you can interject that respect in there. And I think that's just it's, it's such a, a, a important definition like not only in regards to the paranormal, but just in life is just if we can go into this stuff, if we can go into this life experience with curiosity rather than fear, it would just start to eliminate so many problems that we've got going today, I think. Most definitely. Uh, fear is, is something that uh, that adds very little of, of any value. I think appropriate caution is a good thing, uh, especially with these darker cases. I know a number of individuals that have said they will flat never enter the Sally house again after what happened to them there. Um, yeah. And then I have a good friend, um, uh, Aaron Taylor, who slept the night there quite happily. <laughs> um, <laughs> much of it depends on your worldview and what you bring in there with you. I, being a, a huge Star Wars nerd myself, it always reminds me of the sequence in Empire Strikes Back where Luke goes into the cave and asks Yoda, yeah. what will I find in there? And of course, Yoda replies, only what you take with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, that's yeah, that's it's that's perfect. It's the perfect. I've got goosebumps now. So that's like the perfect analogy, though. And it and it is it we really do create a reality with this stuff. And it it's amazing. Even when you know, when we get cases on haunted hospitals, it's always funny, because I always know how that particular story is going to end by the way the person tells the story to our one of our producers. Mm -hmm. You can you can always tell how the case is going to end because it's, you know, oh, this was, you know, I knew immediately this was the most horrific thing that was ever going to happen to me or, you know, there there's but there's always a clue in there about, you know, how a case is going to go based on how the how the person tells that narrative. And what's interesting is that you can take two individuals, two separate people, uh, put them in a similar situation and one approaches it with terror and the other with wonder. Right. Yeah. You know. Uh, and, and I think that's very telling about the way we approach anything in life. Um, oh, absolutely. But certainly with the paranormal, uh, I, I love uh, the world of ufology. You know, I love the, um, the whole gamut of UFO experiences. And I keep reading about the experiences of abductees, contactees. I wrote a book about it a few years back, actually. Uh, and I spoke to several abductees and contactees. And they were, none of them were on the fence. Depending on their perspective, they either described it as the most life-affirming experience they've ever had or the most terrifying, horrific, traumatic experience they've ever had. Um, Interesting. And what it reminded me of was the fact that if you were for a moment somehow to um, take somebody from, let's say, a rainforest tribe, a tribe in the Amazon that had had no contact with Western civilization, and if you were to put them in the middle of uh, let's say uh, a highway and they were run over, they had an accident, heaven forbid. Okay. But along come the paramedics, somebody like me, we come with all of these strange lights and noises in this odd craft you've never seen before. Right. And we jump yeah. out, we look strange. We have strange eyes because we're wearing eye protection. You know, we have uniforms, we have radios. Uh, we bring all of these boxes that have make noises and flashlights and then we start doing procedures on you that are traumatic and terrifying we cut all of your clothes off we put you on our gurney you're cold until we cover you up we stick sharp objects in you uh mm -hmm. i can see how that would be immensely traumatizing if your frame of reference didn't encompass anything like it mm -hmm. yeah. so, so you know that thought experiment just kind of makes me think about the way we practice medicine and kind of makes me wonder I know this isn't necessarily a UFO podcast, but kind of makes me wonder if there isn't some commonality with the abductee experience there. That's very interesting. I think the first time we've heard that, Mike. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And uh, 
and yeah, we're open to talking about UFOs. You here bet. For sure. <laughs> well, and the other thing to think about is that if you know, obviously, it's it's a thought experiment. It's never going to happen. But um, the intentions of the paramedics in that case are for the benefit of the in injured individual. You know, um, yeah. although it might be a terrifying experience, it is for their own good. And I do kind of yeah. wonder, having heard the narratives of UFO abductees and contactees, if if they see it in the same way. Some of them do feel that part of a larger process that benefits mankind in general. Others feel terrified and that they're the victims of something very sinister. And I think it all comes down to frame of reference. Yeah, um, it, I, would agree. I don't Sorry, know Michael. why, but this conversation just reminded me of the movie Jacob's Ladder. Mm. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Tim movie Robbins, either. right? Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, in it, uh, a character played by Danny Aiello is his name is Lewis, and he's a, uh, a a chiropractor, but he's he's a philosopher at the same time, and he talks about Eckhart and how Eckhart saw hell too. And he said, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of life, your memories, your attachments. They burn them all away, but they're not punishing you, he said. They're freeing your soul. So he, the way he sees it, if you're frightened of dying and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing away your life. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. It's just a uh -oh. matter of how you look at it. Ooh. Which which brings us very neatly to the near-death experience, doesn't it? Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Because the overwhelming majority of NDEs that I'm familiar with are positive. But there is this very small subset, small but nevertheless present, um, which is very traumatic and hellish and terrifying. Yeah. Um, and again, we come back to frame of reference. Perhaps you're not ready to let go. Perhaps you're traumatized. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you raise a great point there. Well, and especially too with, with the NDEs, what's been interesting it, within those studies is that the people who typically have the ne super negative experiences mm -hmm. are extremely religious. And I don't know if they've done any studies where there's it's been somebody who has not been um, extremely religious. But as far as I know, that's typically the... The, the profile of the people that have something happen that's that's really terrifying and i mean when you mm. get into the you know people that that tend to be you know hyper religious in that regard um you know anything to do with the paranormal or anything new and different is considered the devil or it's considered you know evil and, and things like that so i kind of wonder if that's part of what we're seeing uh wrapped into that experience as well i do wonder what it would be like for the individual who is not able to conceive of an outcome at the point of death or post-death that is different to what they've essentially been groomed and then self-groomed their entire life to expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? that would be interesting. Like I know um, uh, Dr. Eben Alexander, um, we've yeah. talked about before on the show, I know like, uh, I don't know how spiritual he was before he had his near-death experience, but I mean, being, I know he was very much about materialism and science. Um, of course, he was a, a, for the audience, he was a neurologist and uh, he was, uh, you know, very, very much a man of, of, you know, if I can see it, I can taste it, I can touch it, then it's real. And uh, he ended up with a very severe case of this very rare meningitis and was, ended up in a coma and, Basically, the medicine that he was given wasn't working, and he ended up essentially not quite at death, but definitely had a near-death experience. And so, when he awoke and came back, uh, I, I know he was—he he wasn't sure what had happened, but he knew that he—he'd been somewhere. And his experience, when he—he he detailed that in his uh, in his book, but um, it was—I—I I, I kind of look at that as a bit of a slice of you know somebody who really didn't have a necessarily preconceived notion of what was going to happen and he came back with a such a, a strong and poignant mm. story about you know what what he had experienced we often hear the nde described um, or explained away rather as the ramblings of a diseased brain essentially a dying brain um, sure. but what what doesn't seem to be taken into account is the fact that a, a confused brain, something along those lines, should not be constructing detailed and linear narratives. Yes. Right. Um, which are so sharply defined. As a paramedic and somebody that's been involved with, with many resuscitations, both successful and unsuccessful, 
Um, what fascinates me are the stories of those individuals that are resuscitated and come back with NDEs after they've been um, successfully resuscitated by medical crews because CPR provides a very, I, th I think it's 20% of the normal cerebral perfusion pressure. Wow. So it's enough to keep the brain, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the vital organs minimally perfused and prevent permanent damage. But certainly it isn't enough perfusion to have the brain function normally, which is why they're unconscious, they're unresponsive. Sure. And yet there are these instances, many people, most people in those cases don't remember anything at all. But there are those cases in which um, individuals have been successfully resuscitated and have repeated verbatim things that members of their resuscitation team have said while they were effectively dead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, this has kind of been my my pet thing ever since I was a little kid and I read uh, Raymond A. Moody's book. Oh, yeah. It was just like that was mind boggling to me. And then mm -hmm. uh, ever since, ever since I've just been so into this and um, uh, not to harp on Eben Alexander again, but he really digs in uh, and explains things in a way like these these people have like little to no brain function right and they're ex explaining and uh, expressing these amazing colorful uh, narratives of yeah. experience that shouldn't be happening a, a at good, that time a good corollary mike is that um right now as i talk to you i'm on my writing pc i'm in my writing office so i have my desktop which is a gaming pc sitting here next to me it's in low power mode so mm -hmm. although it's technically on um if i were to fire this thing up at the end of the show and a new game has been installed on the hard drive that shouldn't be possible Right. Yeah. The hard drive should not have the power to write anything, to read anything, to perform its normal function. That's the whole point of a low power energy saving mode. And it's, mm -hmm. the, it's the corollary of what you're talking about. When the brain's in this state of low cerebral perfusion, it is not functioning normally. It shouldn't be. Um, it is barely clinging on by its fingernails. Uh, and I would recommend probably the, my favorite book on, on this whole um, aspect of things is by Dr. Sam Parnia. I don't know if you've read this book. It's called Erasing Death. Uh, and mm. I would strongly recommend you try and get the doc on the show because he talks about the physiology of this in great detail. Oh, this looks, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I obviously just Googled it instantly and it looks really fascinating. Oh, we'll have to, we'll have to reach out to him. Oh, that's, yeah, uh, this uh, subject is, is so, it's so interesting because, you know, not only do I, I, I think, I think near death experiences and, and also leading into a bit of reincarnation as well. These stories where these, you know, like Ian, Dr. Even Ian Stevenson's work with the, you know, reincarnation in children and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I think near death experiences and this, these stories of these, these kids, I think provide some of the best evidence of, of, you know, the survival after death hypothesis that that we have currently i mean it it's phenomenal you know especially when you know we're sitting here talking about the medical science behind mm -hmm. some of this and i mean we're just scratching the surface but I, you know i i think i i think this is the one of one of the closest things that we'll get to you know a roadmap of what is after yeah i think for, for centuries medical science has believed understandably that mind arises from brain that it is mm -hmm. a function of this organic yeah. process. Yeah, emergent. Yeah, and that yeah. once brain is gone, life is gone, mind is gone. And I think there's a, an increasing uh, prevalence of medical professionals who are starting to consider the idea that brain is in fact a receiver of mind, an antenna, if you will, that yeah. mind can be broadcast in from outside and that once the receiver is gone, it's switched up. It doesn't mean the signal or its source is gone. Yeah, you know, uh, and that yeah. makes that, that kind of makes great strides as far as I'm concerned in explaining away many of the paranormal phenomena that intrigue us so much. I know that we don't use TV antennas anymore, but back in the day when we did, um, you know, so you're watching your favorite TV show, let's say The X-Files circa 1995, you turn the show off halfway through, Mulder and Scully are still beaming through the airwaves, right? They're still there. They're just yeah. not being received. 
um, and processed, that signal's not on your TV screen. Mm-hmm. And I think by the same token, it's possible that when our physical brain, the receiver, dies, is shut down, is defunct, that the signal that is us, our personality, our traits, who we are, may still exist, um, and that it its source is still elsewhere. It's out there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, when it comes back to in, in parapsychology, David, the philosopher David Chalmers, and he came up with what they call in parapsychology the hard problem, which is is consciousness fundamental or emergent? Mm-hmm. And I think it is. It's just it being shown more clearly all the time that you know it is something that that is fundamental there is something else going on and all i think all we have to do really if people want evidence of that is just look at our other organs and how they function like we look at our tongue and our you know our eyes our eyes don't create the image our eyes translate light and you know the image is reflected to us or you know our tongue doesn't create the taste but our our tongue receives the taste and we we process it through the brain so it's like all our other organs react this way so you know why not the brain absolutely why not the brain um and i think it reminds me of the arrogance we had when we looked at the the idea that the earth was the center of the universe Mm -hmm. Uh, because that was our psychology we're so important we have to be the center of all things. And I think by the same token as individuals, we're all the stars of our own movie, right? You guys yeah. are supporting characters in my movie tonight. I'm supporting characters in yours, in your mind. In reality, though, it's, I don't, we, the universe doesn't revolve around us. It doesn't center around us. And I don't necessarily think that consciousness does either. But we are so used to thinking that way to putting ourselves at the center of it all that we have this glaring blind spot right in front of our eyes yeah and i think to our uh, we i think it it scares some of the people who you know, have grown up with this specific worldview because you know it, with with that idea with the idea that it's it's strictly emergent it puts us in some semblance of control of the reality we're experiencing you know we can either turn around and say yep you know we're the center of the universe and this is what we do and this is you know this i i know that i went out yesterday and i did these things and because it it feels like it feels like us it feels like we should be something that's tangible and i i what i found especially with a lot of skeptics and uh, we've had guests on the shows over the last year saying the same thing is that these, that this will challenges people's paradigms. Mm -hmm. And when you've got something that is, you know, you're saying, okay, well this, this consciousness, you know, we are translating this consciousness. It is bigger than us. It's a massive shift paradigm wise for these, for people who are really, really clinging to the materialistic idea of the world. Absolutely. And it's it's right out of our comfort zone. It's a scary thing to realize because we have those milestones in life. It, it's like that terrifying day when we realize that our parents are as messed up as we are, um, <laughs> that they are not all knowing, that they are not all seeing, you know. Everybody has that horrifying moment. Often when they become a parent themselves and they realize, I'm not ready for this. Yeah. Wait, you know, where was the training? Um, it's funny, when I became a paramedic, I used to Actually, prior to that, as an EMT, I used to believe that paramedics had all the answers. They were so confident. They were so self-assured in the middle of chaos. And um, I thought the training must just prepare you for everything. And then I became one. And I realized that, in fact, wasn't the case. That um, the confidence was born from, yes, knowledge and skill. But many paramedics are just very good actors, you know. Um, Inside, they're as every bit as scared as everybody else is. And I thought... Ah, uh, but doctors are different. Doctors yeah. aren't afraid of anything. They really do have all the answers. And of course, if you have a candid conversation with any physician who's honest, they'll tell you the same thing, except the buck stops with them, you know? So, yeah. so life has these moments of realization. And I think when we start to accept this possibility regarding our unconsciousness, that's another of those, um, the entire world will change in front of your eyes. The way you look at everything you can never go back after you come to realize that. Oh, it's so true. And it, I mean, it is that way, I think, with, with the paranormal field as well. Like you, when, once you pick it up, there is, you can't unsee what you're looking at. 
And, you know, whatever that filter might be that, you know, we see the world through or, or whatever, I, I found that, you know, no matter what I learn as I, as I go along, it's uh, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And uh, even, you know, teaching and the, you know, both you and I, we've done a fair amount of teaching and, and whatnot. And uh, it's, it's interesting to watch, or what, at least what I found is interesting to watch people's journey through that. Have, have you found that, being in the paranormal has bled into your work as a, a teacher and a paramedic? Um, I had at least one job interview where I was talking about medicine for 20 minutes and the paranormal for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I honestly kept waiting for it to limit my career. Uh, and and it turned 20 years ago, it probably would. Um, but people find it interesting enough now that it, it hasn't. I don't. Many people will ask me, hey, you know, when you're on a 911 scene and it's life and death, do you ever have any paranormal experiences yourself? Because, of course, Morgan, you and I, we, we had all those stories on paranormal 911 and haunted hospitals from people that had that experience. Right. I am so laser focused on my patient and my scene yeah. that mm -hmm. yeah. a parade of headless horsemen could troop past me and I wouldn't notice. Yeah. Um, I am trying to keep my patient in the realm of the living. So I'm focused 100% there. Um, what I do find though, is that a lot of individuals in my line of work, once they become comfortable with you, um, will discuss things that are quite frankly, incredible. And I've written about some of these stories in my haunted healthcare books and used a fair number of aliases, but it, uh, our tagline for haunted hospitals is every nurse has a ghost story. And that's very, very close to being true, right? The yeah, vast yeah. majority of them do. Uh, and I've talked with quite a few of them, they all have something to teach me. And I think the real strength of studying this teaches us how to deal with those who are dying and how to deal with the families um, of the bereaved. That's where the, the real lessons lie for me, I think. I, I can't blame you. I mean, and especially to, you know, I mean, your, your job is so high stress and on so many levels. Uh, how do you decompress from all of this when, you know, what is it? Is it through your writing? Is it what do you, what do you do to pull yourself out of that and to recenter yourself with that that source energy? Writing is a part of it, but for me, I'm very much into escapism in the form of fiction, uh, nonfiction. You'll find me reading a history book, engrossed in at the moment at least uh, histories of the American Revolution, because I'm writing a book about the battles of Lexington and Concord. Um, and then I've been lucky enough to walk that ground myself recently as I do my research. So I like escapism and adventures. Uh, I'm a big fan of escaping into a galaxy far, far away or Metropolis as Superman is flying around on the page or on the screen. Um, I'm in favor of any coping mechanism that really doesn't come in the form of a bottle or a pill. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, it, it can be difficult. I've seen good people destroyed because of the career in medicine they chose and the fact that they were not able to adequately decompress or cope with it. Uh, and the most successful ones, I think the big realization for me was when somebody far wiser told me, you know, burnout is not inevitable. Mm. If there is a term I despise in life in general, it is salty. Um, you know, yeah. people take pride in being salty. Uh, I've seen people be salty to patients. Um, and what they really mean is I'm going to treat you horribly because I can, uh, and I will yeah. use this as an excuse. Well, the real long-term professionals aren't salty at all. They're polite, they're respectful, but they also recognize how to set boundaries and they know that you can't save everyone. And they go home uh, in Colorado. A lot of my colleagues are outdoorsy people. They like to camp. They like to hike. They like to be one with nature. Um, I'm the one Coloradan that is not wired that way. I think I'd rather be one with a big Lego set. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, you mentioned a, ga a gaming computer earlier. Yeah. Is there something in particular that you love? I do. I love games like Civilization, where I get to do some bringing order to chaos and some world building. You know. Cool. Um, I like historical simulations, um, but I also play a lot of board games and tabletop games like Warhammer and things of that nature. Fantasy worlds with their own rules uh, where you can safely escape and you can have a good narrative adventure experience 
uh, that hits my reset switch. There you go. So, uh, you know, we all have our own, right? And I'm a big believer in not judging anybody else for theirs. Um, and that's worked well for me so far. Like I said, 23 years in the medical field, and I don't show any signs of stopping soon. Yeah. And that's so important, especially because we need we need more people like you and more people like you that know that that know how to come into a situation and decompress enough to go back out refreshed so that you can be your best self in the presence of, of a situation where, you know, other people just can't be that. And I think that's that's really, really, really special. Well, I think it takes all sorts to make a world. Um, I talked with my vet about this, uh, having three cats and a dog. Uh, my big Achilles heel is animals. Uh, mm-hmm. when, <laughs> when one of my pets or several of my pets need a blood draw or a shot, I leave the house. I cannot I understand, you know, um, and yet uh, my wife can deal with that all day long, but she can't deal with people that are in pain. My vet and I have both said to one another, thank goodness there are people like you working. Because yeah. I could not deal with what she deals with with animals, and she couldn't deal with what I deal with with humans. And so I think it's important to remember as well that everybody c- contributes to this grand tapestry we call life in their own unique way. And a lesson in ego that I needed to learn uh, as a younger man, and I like to think that I have, was that when I first became an EMT and a firefighter, I had a little bit of a superiority complex because. Here I was doing, quote, unquote, important work. And then the implication there is that the artist, the um, food service individual, the waiter, the cook, whatever it is, is not quite as important because, hey, it's not life or death, right? Mm, And I really needed a knock upside the head to remind myself that there are reasons that we, in fact, stay alive in the first place. And it's to appreciate art and poetry. It's to eat a good meal in good company. Uh, and you never know how somebody is contributing to the greater good, to the grand tapestry of life. So thankfully, right. I outgrew that idiocy. And the reason I bring it up is that if anybody's listening that is perhaps new in a field like the emergency services or the military medicine, something like that, um, by all means, I'm glad you've chosen that kind of profession don't have too high an opinion of that in relation to the rest of humanity. They're every bit as important as you are, even if they're not seeing the things that you're seeing or dealing with the things you're dealing with. That is fantastic advice. And the universe has a has a damn good way of humbling people up too. So, <laughs> you know, like they, you, you can't be too egotistical because there's usually something that comes along and, and reminds you that, you know, you're you're not, you're you're not what you think you are so it's uh, yeah it every everybody like you say has that has that importance yeah the um yeah. The, during COVID, you know some of the biggest unsung heroes i've seen were without a doubt the cleaning staff of the hospitals oh yeah. for sure you will never see a hallmark ornament or a statue to a hospital cleaner and yet these are the men and women who risked every bit as much as the healthcare workers did to keep the hospitals clean and functioning and as safe as they could. And they got paid less and they will work like mules and they are true unsung heroes, you know? So um, those kind of individuals are everywhere. And I also would extend that something I do see a lot as a paramedic is that there is heroism in every life in the places you would least expect it. I see the men and women that are caring for Alzheimer's patients at home and oh, they are no they kidding. have their hands full dealing with the cruelest disease imaginable. Absolutely. Yeah. And the people that are, you know, like that are suffering with, you know, mental illness or or yeah. any like brain injury, anything like that. And I mean, because it's not it, it can be absolutely thankless work. I mean, knowing a, a number of caregivers, even just in my life now, a number of caregivers, and it's I yeah, my hat's off to them. It's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, and, the, and there are the individuals that, I mean, we can even and should even separate this from a job or a profession. There are the individuals with crippling, debilitating depression that just manage to get out of bed in the morning and get through one more day. Yeah. That can be an act of absolute courage. Um, and it often goes unrecognized and unacknowledged. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I... 
we could be here all night talking. <laughs> yeah, this is great. <laughs> oh my gosh. Richard, tell everybody what you're doing next. You are an incredible author. Where can people find your books? What's coming up for you? Give us the lowdown. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me online at richardestep.net. My books are available from both brick and mortar bookstores and online retailers. Um, I know in Canada and the UK, you can see me now along with Morgan and our friend Chris Brewer on the fourth season of Haunted Hospitals, hoping that that comes to the US pretty soon. Um, we don't know when the date will be for that. Uh, my next project uh, is going to be, I'll be investigating the Sally House in Atchison, Kansas this weekend, doing a public event at the McIntyre Villa. And then I go to Harriman, Tennessee to research a book on the haunted hospital there in Harriman. Oh, that's going to be so much fun. Well, as and, always, we can't wait to see whatever's coming up next for you and all of this stuff. And it, we are going to talk more often, damn it. Uh, what a great idea. Yes. Yeah. I think the last time I called you, I was stuck in a blizzard coming back from the airport shooting haunted hospitals, correct? You were. <laughs> you were. Because yeah. we like to compare notes afterwards about the cases we've been assigned. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll get booked again together in Toronto and actually be there. I should like that. Yeah, I think we shot the last one in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, and before that, season three, which was mid-COVID, um, we shot that remotely. We had a director in um, Canada. And we shot that, Chris Brewer and I, I know, shot that separately in a hotel downtown in Denver, close to where we live. Yeah. So, oh, my God. Okay, Let's well, do we'll, Toronto again. We have to do Toronto again. We'll go back to to the mansion we had supper at and we'll, mm. we'll do all that because, yeah, that was that was amazing. So thank you so much, Richard, for, for everything and for all your advice and just everything you do. And we will talk again soon. Thank you both for having me on the show. And thanks to everybody that tuned in to listen. I appreciate you. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. As we move into a new age, spirituality and healthcare is becoming greatly interlinked in ways we haven't seen in many hundreds of years. The notion that people's intention and focus do not affect healing, whether it be for ourselves or directed towards others, is coming to an end, with places like the Institute of Noetic Science working to ultimately prove that we are more than simply meat suits with a brain that allows us awareness. How will this change the face of medicine as EMTs, nurses, and doctors are forced to include brand new factors into their treatments and even diagnoses? For example, the notion of directed or non-directed prayer may now be a factor taken into account for treatment. Directed prayers are prayers in which intercessors ask their higher power to make manifest specific objectives Non-directed prayers are prayers which ask for the will of a higher power to be made manifest, whatever that may be, or that ask for whatever is best for their patient, such as thy will be done. It has been suggested that spiritual healing should not be investigated scientifically in the absence of a plausible explanation of the underlying mechanism. In a recent paper, researchers were quoted as saying the following, our study focused only on intercessory prayer as provided in this trial, and was never intended to and cannot address a large number of religious questions, such as whether God exists, whether God answers these prayers, or whether prayers from one religious group work in the same way as prayers from other groups. 
We have not proven that God answers prayers or that God even exists. It was a prayer, not the existence of God, that was tested here. The idea of whether spirituality affects those who care for the sick and injured is undoubtedly a hot topic, but one that is not often talked about. In my four years on haunted hospitals and paranormal 911, I have had the privilege of meeting those who have dared to talk about things like intention, life after death, near-death experiences, OBEs, spirits, and their impact in the medical field. I've had the joy of sharing the screen with my co-host, Richard Eastep, a paramedic who lives this balance as both an EMT and paranormal author and investigator. My own family history is steeped in medical backgrounds as well, including my mother, a 30-year registered nurse, my great-great-grandfather, Albert Durant Watson, who was a famous physician and paranormal researcher, and my great-grandfather, all found their way in the medical profession. As Richard and I have tackled haunted hospitals cases of all kinds, we've had to navigate emotions, religions, science, belief, and personal experiences, which have all impacted our clients, and in Richard's case, have a role in how he deals with patients from day to day. The human experience is not a one-size-fits-all experience. In fact, it is so unique to each person that our perception will actually alter how we see what otherwise would be identical things. No individual awareness is the same, which means as we move ahead in medical science, that treatment must become as individual as our perception and as we test the boundaries of faith, placebos, spirituality, and health, how we navigate this for our own well-being will become and is becoming paramount to a treatment's success or failure. Once we begin to accept that science is beginning to catch up with psi, how we treat ourselves and others in both life and medicine will undoubtedly become a healer's field in more ways than we can imagine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at darkpatine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.